Hello. This podcast is entitled The Stampede City Sisters, a community talks because people are dying and these are relevant and important topics. We're very excited because this is our second episode in our series around homelessness. Today, we'll be chatting about housing first and other housing options available to those who have been episodically or chronically homeless. We'll look at the beautiful idea of peer support and talk again about the social depriments of health and how this impacts the homeless even after they are housed. Your podcast host is Sister Jackalicious and our guest is Miss Stasha Tank. Our podcast was produced by Sister Baradol from the Vancouver Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence of the Abbey of the Long Cedar Canoe. Hi there, I'm Sister Jackalicious from the Stampede City Sisters. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm a very proud queer woman. I acknowledge my white privilege and all the unearned benefits my whiteness has afforded me. I was born in Ottawa, Ontario, and I recognize that Ottawa is located on the unceded territories of the Algonquin and the Anishinaabe Nation. I would love to give a shout out again to Black Chat Podcast in the Vancouver area for the idea of doing a land acknowledgement of your birthplace. Due to the second wave of COVID, this podcast is via Skype. We are saddened that we're not down by the river. Our right to live and prosper here in Canada is made possible through a series of agreements laid out between First Nations and European newcomers. The treaties outline how different cultures could coexist as one country. Every Canadian benefits from the privilege and is bound by responsibilities that stem directly from the agreements laid out between First Nations and European newcomers. Therefore, we do a land acknowledgement to give back a sense of identity by honoring the original caretakers of the land we are on, which in Calgary is Treaty 7. So in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that we live on the traditional territories of Treaty 7 nations, the Pakani, the Sisika First Nation, the Ghana First Nation, the Stony Nakoda First Nations, the Tutsina First Nation. We acknowledge the ancestral territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy and the home of Métis Region 3. Our treaty, Seven, is one of a family of numbered treaties that were intended to define how two very different cultures might agree to coexist. But to most people, Treaty 7 is an obscure, misunderstood historical artifact. And these misunderstandings, in turn, lead to false assumptions, some confrontation, and at times, disgust. A greater understanding of what Treaty 7 means to each and every one of us would be a great benefit to anyone who wishes for a better understanding of Calgary, its immediate history, and its potential to become a really great city. I have taken these quotes from the Making Treaty 7 Cultural Society, which explores the historical significance of the events at the Blackfoot Crossing in 1877 while investigating the consequences and the implication of Treaty 7 142 years later. We offer this trigger warning so you may prepare emotionally or decide not to listen to this podcast, during which we discuss childhood trauma, addiction, and drug overdose. Listener discretion is advised. On this podcast, we like our special guests to introduce themselves so we don't miss any of the juicy parts. Stasha, welcome. Thank you. Very good to be with you again. Mm. 
I'm Stasha. I've been working with uh, the homeless community for 20 years, and um, I have personal experience living in that community. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing, getting the word out about these kind of topics so that um, people can have more information. Where were you born, Stasha? What's your land acknowledgement? Oh, yes. Um, I was born in Treaty 7 territory um, where the rivers meet, the Bow River and the Elbow River, um, and in the Rocky Mountains. And it's very important to me that we acknowledge that um, you and I, we still benefit from colonialism, from all these structures that are set up that put people at a disadvantage just because they were born Indigenous. And it's still a terrible attack on spirit and, and human beings. And we have to fight that all the time. So it's, it's a verb of trying to acknowledge uh, how we got this land and how we came to be living here and what shapes our relationship with the land, how we think about it. Yeah. You know, last last podcast, we talked a little bit about what people's perceptions are of the homeless. And I said that most people consider homeless folks to be a drunk Indian. So we got some feedback on that around the language. And I use that language because that's what I hear most often when I talk about homeless people is a drunk Indian. We do use the term indigenous. Can you speak to why there are so many indigenous folks that are experiencing episodic, chronic, or absolute homelessness in our province, which is Calgary, Alberta, and uh, across all other provinces? Well, basically the answer is racism, because of racism, because of systemic inequality, um, because of how uh, Canada was uh, developed, right? It, it hasn't changed. There's still lots of reserves that don't have clean water. If those were were towns of non-Indigenous people, it, it would not stand. Um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has done all that work about gathering the evidence of answering that question, identifying actionable things that we can do um, as citizens, as our profession, as people living in the world. Um, so that, that is the main resource about that, and I'm, it's an important question. I would like to, we both just were mentioning Jesse Thistle, and I love the work that Jesse Thistle has done, and he is a Métis academic with a history of homelessness himself, and he wrote this definition of Indigenous homelessness. Indigenous homelessness is a human condition that describes First Nations, Métis and Inuit individuals, families or communities lacking stable, permanent, appropriate housing, or the immediate prospects, means, or ability to acquire such housing. Unlike the common colonist definition of homelessness, Indigenous homelessness is not defined as lacking a structure of habitation. Rather, it is more fully described and understood through a competent lens of Indigenous worldviews. These include individual families and communities isolated from relationships to land and water, family, kin, each other, animals, culture, language, and identities. Importantly, Indigenous people experiencing these kinds of homelessness cannot culturally, spiritually, emotionally, or physically reconnect with their indigeny 
or lost relationships. What do you that, think of that quote? I love that because he focuses on belonging, on how it is relational. Like the reason people use such stigmatizing terms is to distance themselves from homeless people of not thinking that you could end up there or telling yourself that if someone's there, it's their fault. Um, and so you can control whether you would get there or not. Like everyone in our society is closer to homelessness than being a millionaire. And yet the way that people act uh, defending millionaires during a pandemic is uh, quite upsetting <laughs> to me. Well, the millionaires have profited more during this pandemic than they have in the last 20 years. Yeah, and they're the billionaires. That's the billionaires. Bi right? Billionaires, trillionaires. Yes, the rich, rich, rich. We can't even, uh, I can't even imagine a million dollars, like a billion dollars. That is beyond my brain. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about this. Well, those guys are making money. Yeah, lots of money off, off desperation. Anyway, Jesse, Jesse Thistle. <laughs> um, the, this definition, I think non-Indigenous people can learn about a lot from that as well, that um, stigma is a rejection from society. Stigma is, yes, is telling you you don't belong, you're not good enough, like uh, a lot of messages of rejection. And that connection to home, what home means to you, is spiritual. It is. We all need that. We need a safe place where we belong, where we're not attacked, where we can build a routine, like we're safe enough to be ourselves. That uh, There's lots of groups that are separated from that because of oppression, right? Uh, not knowing if it's safe to be yourself. What groups would those be? Oh, Jack, lots, lots. It's, you know, deciding if you're safe to come out as, as gay, as trans, um, people who have racist judgments that, that try to get white passing people to join them in that racism and um, that feeling that you can never be safe, like not wanting people to find out you're poor when you're a kid, when you're a grown up, you know, why would that be a problem with, you know, and it is of that stigma is because we look down on people who are not making it in a world where yeah you you have to be a billionaire to to make it unscarred <laughs> you know it's, well it's, and, and now if you look at covid and the impact it has on our beloved senior citizens housing and housing safety and not being exploited is a very big issue uh, for our for our seniors and especially for the LGBTQ two spirited seniors. It's it is um, an emergent issue and a time when we should be very worried about our seniors. Yeah, and exactly like any group that lives in in groups in close proximity, right? It's like people with disabilities and what's happening with the Alberta government right now in terms of sneaking all this abusive policy under COVID and and during COVID, like even changing when the the government support H payments come. I know. And they at the end of the month, the day after the end of the month, that has really screwed so many of the folks I work with. Yeah, and it's such garbage. There's no need for that. They were doing that because they're doing fraudulent accounting. They were trying to put like one month of expenses in the last year. 
fuck off. Like, <laughs> no consequences for that. Yeah. Uh, but the, all these topics are connected, right? To me, the way that I define homelessness is it is a symptom of other problems. It is due to sh- bad social policies. It is due to people falling through the cracks. It is due to colonialism, systemic racism, ableism, sexism, heterosexism. We know that housing instability is because of many intersecting and underlying issues. Can you tell us a little bit about what those uh, intersections and underlying issues may be? Yeah, sure. Um, A good place to start is looking at people's experience with trauma, right? Um, Lots of veterans, lots of people who experience child abuse, domestic violence, Um, homelessness is often a a result of um, not getting help for those kind of experiences and especially for causing more trauma right the experience of homelessness and not knowing where your home is where that safe place is um, of course adds to people's trauma and it you can't heal while you're still in that survival mode I can't imagine yeah so so Trauma is a good place and and loss and grief, right? Of um, lots of seniors are in the homeless uh, shelters because their government supports are not enough to live on or people on income supports or age where their rent is more than half their income. We know that's not sustainable. We know that 30% of your income is is what we consider sustainable and it's still tight, right? Like yeah. it's oh, very tight. You can never relax, you know, mm-hmm. you can never, chronic poverty, um, you can think of homelessness as a kind of poverty, right, of how in the richest place in the world do we have people who don't have housing, and when it's minus 30 in the winter, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a life or death issue in, in Canada, in this part of the world. Especially people that are even housed, that are low in, living in low-income housing. We talk about being outside in the winter. I know there are many people who actually have to make the decision, do I put $70 worth of groceries in the fridge or do I put $40 on my electrical bill or my heating bill and hope to God they don't cut that off. So there's many, like you said, there's no ability to relax. You're constantly hypervigilant about what's next, what has to happen. And you talked about kids, um, the impact on children going to school and, and not having the best clothes or the calculator they need for math. So it impacts their ability to learn, which creates more problems later on down the road for them as, as adults getting into university and getting a good education that buys you that all American dream of the two kids, the white picket fence, beautiful, beautiful wife or husband in the house. Which we know is impossible. (laughs) How many one-income households do you know um, Mm -hmm. that have kids that have, like, oh, my gosh. It's it's not sustainable unless one person is doing a lot of labor for free, right? That that's the actual capitalist family model, right? Is exploitation. (laughs) So extreme exploitation of the of the home and house caregiver. That's right. We we don't well. I could get distracted talking about that. That's really definitely. Oh so man. So let's get distracted talking a little bit a little bit more. Um, when we did our last podcast, we talked about addiction and mental health. Wow. Folks would like to know a little bit more on what exactly when we talk about root causes of homelessness, 
Can you talk a little bit about a few of those uh, root causes in, briefly? Sure. Like, um, well, if if we take Jesse's definition about homelessness, that is about relationships and um, mental health and addiction strongly affect your relationships, your closest um, relationships, and. Addiction, I mean, the way we look at is addiction affecting my life, it is those kind of impacts, you know, like would you steal from a family member to get high? Those kind of examples destroy relationships. And most people, well, we talked about addiction has a lot to do with trauma as well. And it's not, it's not the only factor, you know, and we emphasize that. But it is a common factor. People addiction, we never talk about how drugs are fun, right? Like mm -hmm. the reason people do drugs is because they make you feel awesome. And we never talk to kids about that, like especially and we can hide that um, from people, from ourselves. And there's there's certain drugs we accept, like saying it's wine o'clock or or those kind of cultures or having a coffee because you're tired like you are doing speed to cover up that you're not meeting your basic need for sleep right but office workers who are having coffee right now are not thinking about it like that getting their hit of speed so they can function every day right so they can um, show up so they can show up yeah right show up yeah. and perform because we need to chase the american dream Let's talk a little bit. We always like to do in our podcast, and we will continue to do it, a myth buster. So the myth buster for you today, Stasha, is people experiencing homelessness, well, they're just lazy. What do you think about that? Well, it's, um, it's a really common one, and it is people do that when they want to tell themselves why they'll never be homeless. And in this society, especially with pandemic, we are all at risk of unemployment, homelessness, losing our jobs, our houses, our relationships. And that is scary. That's terrifying. And we can address that as a society when we stop saying, oh, this person uh, has not become a millionaire. They are a failure, <laughs> right? Like the American dream, like that idea of meritocracy is if you work hard, you'll get rewarded. That is not true. <laughs> and that's, that's hard, right? In a, in a society, it's not fair. Like there's lots of resources online talking about, uh, I think it's called the unfair race, right? Of what kind of barriers, someone is facing who doesn't have privilege um who's navigating like uh, all these challenges and then also racism or also ableism or all of those things at once it's not fair it's not a fair game that we're playing for the uh, american dream there and the way that we actually achieve that is by looking at what we have in common instead mm -hmm. of you know, our commonalities yeah, yeah trying to avoid that that is a community member who is going to die. That should be our all of our responsibility to question why this is happening, to work to change that, right? Not to turn your back on your um, fellow human being there. So, you know, 
place to start at the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. of empathy. I'll, I'll give an example of why this um, this myth bothers me. I work uh -huh. in a building with 50, 55 guys, and the majority of the men in that building are far from lazy. They chase money because a lot of them are on Alberta subsidized income for the handicap, Alberta works, um, welfare, so they don't have enough to meet their needs. And of course their, their rent at that building is based on what their income level is. So some of our guys might end up with $100 left over at the end of the month after they pay their rent. Yeah. And these were men that were formerly homeless facing uh, an addiction issue, but also living with severe mental health. So um, for me, these uh, a few of these gentlemen get up very, very early and they go uh, pick bottles. But to pick bottles, they have made relationships in the community with certain um, businesses and organizations. They continue to make relationships with the individuals to um, to get their bottles. They know their families. They know their names. They know when someone's sick. They know when it's people's birthdays. So mm -hmm. they work from five o'clock in the morning. They get back around four or five o'clock at night. And then they start again at five o'clock in the morning and they go back to the next place where they have those relationships and they have their section of Calgary that they work in and get their bottles. So um, I know that most of them just to survive, to, you know, even to chase when they were homeless, to obtain shelter, to to try to find a washroom, to find a shower, to find somewhere to have a warm meal or get a meal. That's not a, a leftover donut handed out by some street church. But thank you for the street church for that donut, because sometimes that's the only meal people get. So the problems with myths for me, they're very problematic because they impart to stigma. And um, to this group of people who are already vulnerable and marginalized, it just heaps more shame. Yeah, it's a rejection. They work harder mm -hmm. than anyone I've ever met, right? Like all, like if you want to look at the professions that we're calling essential workers during the pandemic that are essential, like people who work at the grocery store, people who clean the hospital, we pay them the smallest amount of money we possibly could, right? Your job with the guys. We mm -hmm. we pay the bottom of of the the barrel minimum wage, yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for for that kind of care to address that issue. So, part of it is that the resources are are not being directed. We we get half of what we need to accomplish our goals, right? To house That's that right. number of people or whatever, mm -hmm. um, and and saying that laziness is what gets you homeless is the opposite right like as you get promoted through a company you are less and less afraid right <laughs> that's right job, for you you're less surveilled you usually do less right because mm -hmm. you're supervising people who are doing the actual work we could get into hierarchy and <laughs> capitalism here but saying that homeless people is, that's are that's like Mm -hmm. exact opposite of true absolutely and it, it's, uh, because people are afraid it, it of being homeless themselves like they are they want to put distance between themselves and that experience like um one reason i know that is because i worked with homeless youth for so long and when uh, some of them when they get housed then they will say things like those lazy homeless bums and they've internalized those ideas 
people have told them their whole life about how they're lazy. They've internalized that and they want to distance themselves from those homeless people because mm -hmm. they do face stigma being formerly homeless, right? People do mm -hmm. judge you and it does reinforce, you know, less opportunities, less jobs, like those kind of things. Someone's in the homeless shelter making minimum wage, going to work every day when they might not have slept at all because of what's going on in the shelter. They might have missed breakfast, whatever, all these things. Where do you want them to save their damage deposit, right? For their apartment. Right. Talk you to know, me about that. Like, let's be real here. Yeah, a month's rent plus your first month's rent. So how many weeks would that take you at minimum wage in the shelter? You're hiding that in, in your fucking sock. Like, and hoping know? no one takes it from you, Yeah, right? Yes, it's ridiculous. So many people don't have bank accounts because of their history with the bank, because they get overdraft charges, because they have no uh, money, right? Mm -hmm. and then you get charged and then you can't afford to ever pay that back because your welfare check is never more, right? There's no mm -hmm. extra with H, there's no catching up. Once you're $10 in the hole, you can never, never catch get up. out of it. No. You can never get out of it. I had a gentleman tell me a story. He, um, when he was homeless that now lives in our building, he used to sleep on a bench and he would wait till about three o'clock in the morning to finally feel that he didn't have to be in a state of hypervigilance worrying about what was going to happen to him. So about three o'clock to usually eight o'clock in the morning was when he got his best sleep. But that was usually when he was also at times woken up the most by people going to work saying, get a job, you lazy, blah, 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 blah. And the fact was he wasn't lazy. That was the safest time for him to actually get some sleep. So our perceptions of people are so skewed um, by our own uh, internal drive to be better than and not not who they are. No. So let's talk a little bit right now about what is our government's role in housing the homeless. So if we were to go to the Canada.ca website and look at about reaching home, Canada's homeless strategy, they want to talk about supporting the goals of the national housing strategy. And the national housing, housing strategy works particularly with the most vulnerable Canadians uh, to maintain safe, stable and affordable housing and to reduce chronic homelessness. And they're hoping to do that by 50%, 50%. So half of our homeless population, 50% by the year 2027 or 2028. They're going to do this by offering more community-based programs aimed at preventing and reducing homelessness across our country with these programs providing funding to urban, indigenous, rural, and remote communities to assist them in addressing their local homelessness. The idea of ending homelessness instead of managing it, this I support because we can say we don't accept this in our society. We don't accept that we'll leave someone out in the cold. So in terms of values, that is a good goal. <laughs> in terms of achieving this goal, that timeline goes over two elections, right? So like in Alberta right now, our our conservative government is trying to just undo everything the NDP did for the four years before Absolutely. that. Absolutely. This happens on the federal level all the time. Just liberals and conservatives undoing each other's stuff and everyone ignoring everything. 
we didn't have a national housing strategy, like we didn't have a federal response for 20 years before this, right? In between, <laughs> avoid. Uh, thousands of people have been working for more than 25 years to get Canada to recognize that housing is a human right. It's not optional, it's not a privilege, it's life or death in our cities and it's our responsibility. They're acknowledging rural homelessness. At the Thank beginning, totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people mm -hmm. die from that. Right. There's services, there's way more mm -hmm. stigma, there's way more, mm -hmm. people hide it more because it's, it's terrible, the rejection from the community. Oh, yeah. Small communities, you're very, very visible and very, very vulnerable. And now, like, we are having some program, like, some cooperation between the feds and the province where rural communities, once they address that it's happening there, they want to do something about it, right? Mm -hmm. Those community members. And they, there are excellent initiatives where that come from the community like that. And then there's also NIMBY, which I'm sure we talked about last time. Not in my neighborhood, please. Yeah. So, and people, that is not neighborly, right? It's like, you, they're already your neighbor. If, if you're seeing a homeless person enough to yell at them that they're lazy, they're your neighbor. They're your community member. You guys right. share, you share a community. Mm -hmm. And that's so, that's what home actually is. It is somewhere where people won't yell at you that you're lazy. Right? Mm -hmm. like, really. Uh, and that is a, a human right, a human need. It is not, is not optional, that belonging to a community. Mm -hmm. mm. So let's, let's go into a little bit more about housing the homeless. We've talked quite a bit about being homeless. Let's look at some of the solutions and strategies and some of the innovation that's being done. And one of those things um, that was created by Dr. Sam, and I'm going to spell his last name for the love of whatever, I cannot say it. It is T-S-E-M-B-E-R-I-S. And he was a psychiatrist, I believe, in New York. And in 1992, had a witnessing of individuals that he was treating in the hospital, thinking that they were having some success, but seeing them really struggling and living on the street and tried to figure out why was that occurring and what could he do. So he created the model Housing First. Can you talk about what Housing First is briefly? And then we'll get into the principles a little later on. Sure. Love it. Um what was, one thing that was important is that he recognized that we we did this thing where uh, in mental health services we wanted to deinstitutionalize. We we were locking people up for years just for being different in any way, and it wasn't about community integration. It was about keeping them separate behind a wall, behind a gate, whatever. There was a lot of restraints, chemical restraint, all those things. Then. We figured out kind of as a society that that was a terrible idea. And then we started looking at community integration models like supportive roommates, like how can we um, celebrate these differences, make things accessible instead of, you know, <laughs> changing the person, change the society, change the environment. Um, but what that resulted in is so many people experiencing homelessness who 
had only been in institutions, released with no supports, no community outreach, no job no, skills, no money, anything, mm-hmm. no relationships, no mm-hmm. medication, like mm-hmm. all these brutal so made that connection, right? Um, that a lot of the population of people experiencing homelessness now was because of those policy changes, like 10, 20 years uh, ahead of that. So that's important. Housing first is the idea that housing is a human right, that instead of earning housing, uh, you don't have to be housing ready. (laughs) Yeah, if you give someone housing, then they can live, they can function. They, what they an idea. Stop worrying about that. Yeah. And <laughs> it's been proven. Like now we have the data. We've been doing that for 20 years now. Now we have the data to prove the outcomes, especially how it helps people who are living with mental illness and how the supports need to come to them. If we have a behavioral issue, it doesn't mean you lose your housing. Right. right. Losing housing as punishment, like inflicting homelessness as punishment. If someone did that to their kids, we would apprehend them. Right, uh, they'd be apprehended. The I'm just going to system like once you're in. So if if someone was using homelessness as a consequence for their kids, social workers would probably see that as cause to apprehend their kids that their kids are in danger. But also the once you're in the child welfare system being sent to the shelter out of your group home or out of your foster placement is often a a punishment for behavior right yeah framed as a consequence but and and there is some of that in real life right like like if i smoke inside in my apartment i might get kicked out like i'm risking that housing there there are real things like that but not in if you think housing is a human right then you will find a different consequence for the smoking right that's <laughs> like, right instead that's right. of people being less because of behavioral issues and a lot of those behavioral issues are just the way they learned to live when they were homeless right needing to have the window open when you go to sleep like not wanting the door to be closed because you experience child abuse there's so many things that are not it's not the problem, it's symptoms of, of usually trauma, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and uh, So h- housing first, yes, we used to have, you and I both worked in this model for a long time about the staircase model of you must earn housing, you must be worthy, worthy of housing. You have to get sober when you're living at the shelter with people who are using every day beside your bed, like, you, you have to get sober when you have, you need to save your damage deposit, when you have nowhere to save your money, where you, it costs you money to use the bathroom, right, in public, right. like if you have to buy coffee, you have to do this. All these expenses of being poor, there are so many, like paying for the laundromat instead of having that in your house, just exponential costs that mm-hmm. are extracted from people who don't have a choice about doing their laundry at home or whatever. Well, Um, you know, one of the guys explained it like this to me, housing first. He said, just think, Jack, you have a closet. You have a closet, Jack. You have a closet where you can change your seasonal clothing, where you can hang it up and know that it's safe. 
I carry my closet on my back and I hope that someone doesn't take my closet from me. And that, that perspective changed the way I looked at things when I do my work is, is I always remember the closet. I have mm -hmm. a closet, that simple little thing in my house that I use on a daily basis that I don't even think about. Sometimes I think it's so stuffed so full, I don't have enough room, I need a more closet. Let me go buy more things to put in my closet. I never considered that someone's backpack was actually their closet. And this was very young in my career, but still a very impactful moment. So for me, housing yeah. first is you just don't need to meet some bullshit criteria to get into a house. Yeah, to get and the, U the UN agrees that it's a housing right, but hardly any of, uh, not a lot of countries will sign on to that because it makes us responsible. <laughs> it means we have to do something. So making these promises without doing that, so, and, and 2028, like, that's the problem between the government cycles being four years, but then the plans being like eight years, 10 years, that has not ever worked out for us, but we seem to ignore that in policy, right? Like, okay, so what can we do in four years? And how, how can that how can we bridge that right between ideologies that we're electing? It's so funny, like not funny, haha. Right? Like, no, it's it's it's, it's mind-boggling. And, yeah. and and just to throw out another statistic, um, it will cost to meet that goal and to extend it by two years to say even if we get to twenty thirty, it will cost fifty billion dollars to roll out that plan to end possible homelessness. Yeah, 50 billion. we've got to compare whatever we spend on the military, whatever we spend <laughs> on bailing out Wall Street and the, <sighs> we spend that much money on things. We don't question whether that's optional, bailing out the oil companies in Alberta. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about spending that money on saving people's lives, it seems like a lot more resistance. It seems, it seems like a big, 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 big number. And I think there's lots of ways we can spend that money to avoid that big, big number in the first place. And one of those things that we talked about, Tank, um, last time was harm reduction. And it is a holistic approach that seeks to address the cause of the outcomes from drug and alcohol use. But harm reduction is critical in the role. It goes together. Harm reduction and housing first, peanut butter and jelly, you can't have one without the other. And harm reduction was the first to announce that um, without harm reduction, housing first uh, wouldn't have been considered a human right. Well, it is a form of harm reduction, right? It's recognized if you don't house people, they will cost the system a lot more money than whatever billions to prevent it. So much more, like so expensive to keep someone in jail for one night one ambulance ride, like it, when you are homeless, there is a lot of interaction with emergency services and that is not always what people need, right? <laughs> like it's, it's, it's a different kind, if you can house that person instead of taking them to the emergency room six times in a week, um, that is a better investment for society and I hate talking about it like that because I think we should do it no matter what it costs because it's about people I think we should choose people over money mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's places to get that money that we're not looking right yes <laughs> um, <laughs> but people like if you're making policy decisions it is more 
reasonable to spend your money in prevention than intervention, right? And especially to prevent emergencies like that. So when you think of, and we'll we'll take a break here in a minute, but when you think of harm reduction, give me an example of how harm reduction works with Housing First. Well, like uh, if you give someone a house, they can save up for their next damage deposit or they can save up so that they can buy work boots so that they can go to work, right? Like steel-toed boots. You need money to acquire those. You can't work for money until you acquire those. So there's so many examples like that that are traps, that are catch-22s. And no matter how hard you work, you can't get out of that problem, right? So housing provides the foundation for people to be able to go to counseling, people to be able to take their medications, even antibiotics, right? Having to take antibiotics three times a day, having to find water, having to keep track of time. There are a lot of challenges in that kind of thing. Trying to take care of a a wound while you're in the... Oh, gosh. One of our guys has diabetes, and just the fact that he can have his diabetes kit, it was stolen so many times from him when he was on the street uh, that he was never able to be controlled or in check, and he had many uh, injuries that resulted from uh, living with diabetes while living on the street, and now he's able to maintain it, and he feels really successful and proud of that small accomplishment, but it took housing for him to be able to address diabetes. There's your example, right? It's so right. hard to take care of your mental and physical health when you don't have that foundation. And there mm-hmm. is a lot of people living in unhealthy, substandard, and dangerous housing. And that's an important group to talk about. Usually when we talk about homelessness, people only think of usually a single man in a shelter. Um, but there are homeless families, there are people couch surfing, there are people living in abusive situations who don't have the option to leave. So it, it's much bigger population than what you see of people panhandling on the street, right? And and that, in terms of the community issue, it's, it's bigger than even that. Mm-hmm. Oh, one thing I wanted to say, I can't remember what we were talking about, but... Um, Homeless people actually have more money than housed people because usually housed people have debt. They have like credit on their car or their house or their house and their car and their car. And I like pointing that out. (laughs) (laughs) That is a good point. Richer than you are. (laughs) Yeah, man. That's okay. Let them be. They're richer in, in, you know what? They're richer in many ways. They're um, uh, an amazing group of, of individuals. Stasha, could you please uh, talk to us now about Housing First principles, the Housing First um, that was developed uh, developed by our psychiatrist, uh, psychologist that we talked about, has a bunch of principles. Let's address a few of those today. Sure. Well, we already talked about harm reduction, and that that's a big one about the philosophy that people do not have to earn housing. That's that's a big shift for our society. Um, and that it's based on choice. And th- this brings up some other ideas, like uh, that saying beggars can't be choosers. That is that is stigma right there, right? It's like... It is, it is, it is, it is. Yeah, if you, if you need food, if you need shelter, if you need basic needs, then you'll take what we give you. 
Like, what kind of approach is that? That is not compassionate. That is very strange that that beggars should be punished, right? Mm-hmm. That they should be grateful for whatever crumbs they get. That's not a society that I want to participate in. Me either, sister. <laughs> Thank you. So the choice is, like... Sometimes we we used to place people in housing that was three hours away from their job by transit or that was in a neighborhood where their abusive ex lived or that was somewhere where you couldn't take transit to. There was no laundry mat, like all those things. No schools for their kids to attend. Yes, and Mm -hmm. these things we do take for granted, right? These choices that we have every day about choosing what we wear, choosing what we eat. There's lots of um, people who have like moral and religious reasons for not eating certain things that are just told to, well, you go hungry then in the shelter, right? If you don't want to eat pork or you don't want to whatever. Mm-hmm. And that that is how we express ourselves through our choices, right? Through those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really important and you have to battle a lot of stigma about why should they have choice when I don't or why should they have choice when they're lazy, like all these things that we talked about. Um, so that's an interesting one and, and we, the social services used to be way more beggars can't be choosers, like, and this idea of some people deserve basic needs and some people don't. And who's uh, that? Who makes that decision? Yeah, exactly. it's crazy. It's just crazy. It is Teeth or not. A slippery slope, right? Because yeah. um, that's why if you start with housing as a human right, you don't have to decide who deserves it and who doesn't. Who deserves to die in the snow in minus 30, right? Ugh. Um, it's also really important that it, it is driven by the person who needs housing. Um it's very strength-based, like the way you and I see the world of um, that homeless people work very hard and have a lot of strengths, a lot of dedication, a lot of uh, problem-solving, because it is life and death. Um, so when you actually offer choice, um, people feel better. It, it's home more than housing, right? It's It's going towards building that the connection the relationships yeah. um yeah like and so they, for me it's they lead and i follow that's yeah. that's it's their self-directed and and their self-determination i follow where they want to go with that yeah and support and help them see choices right because sometimes when people judge us for making choices, they don't look at what we're choosing between, right? Like your example, like, should I pay the rent or feed the kids? Which should I do? No matter which I do, someone's going to take my kids, right? Like that, that uh, society will reject me whether I do, because I can only do one of those things, right? Mm -hmm. And so I always use that example of, you know, how do you make money eat? Which of those things would you do, right, when you're there? Like, recycling is one of them. Mm-hmm. And none of them are easy. And no. And all of them are... You need very- a garbage bag, by the way, to recycle a whole bunch of bottles. For $4 worth of bottles, you need a garbage bag. And no matter how hard you squish that can in that bottle, they add up. Mm-hmm. Where do you get that garbage bag? Yeah. yeah, and it's those little things that keep people out, keep people trapped, Right. 
Uh, the other thing about housing first is it must come with supports. You don't just put someone in a building, which is what Jesse's um, definition helps us not do that. It's not about the four walls. It's not about the roof. It's about belonging, acceptance. It's about being safe to be yourself, to make choices, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's a big one that uh, we talked about the separate housing and services, that not losing your housing for behavioral issues. You know, there's other ways to address that, much more useful ways. <laughs> Well, and it's got, you know, coming from someone that does supportive housing and has set up many residents and different ways for people to live, it really needs to be very flexible and judgment needs to take, you need to, like I said last podcast, whether it aligns with my choices and my beliefs, I have no right to stand in the way of that person's choice and I need to be flexible. The services need to be flexible. The funding needs to be flexible. Everything needs to be flexible. Like Pokey and Gumby, we need to be able to bend over in all kinds of ways to make sure that people are successful. <laughs> well, it's true. People are diverse. People are different. It's ridiculous that we have to even say that. But it's <laughs> right? so true. Yeah. It so when I, when I think of uh, Housing First, there's lots of great places in Calgary that do Housing First and harm reduction. Um, I would like to give a shout out to Rain City Housing and Support in Vancouver, which is so much more than a, a warm, dry place to say. They help create more options in folks', uh, folks lives. And I love that they can take someone directly from um, being homeless and, and have them housed. And the other part to getting housed is being successful working with the people that are your landlords and your renters and explaining and working with them to understand disability, to understand domestic violence, to understand poverty, mental health, addictions, and even physical chronic illness and disability. So there's a lot of work that organizations do to, um, to be successful with folks to get housed. Yeah, that's so, a really good point because that, that was a new approach to um, involve landlords yeah. mm -hmm. as community members because to access existing housing, it would take us so long to even catch up to the cuts to the housing we haven't maintained since the 70s for uh, making new buildings. Like, we actually mathematically cannot catch up because of years of neglect. And so turning to market housing, looking for, you know, when a, when a Vancouver does a lot of stuff, when a developer builds and then a third of that has to be affordable housing or mm -hmm. certain units. It's fantastic. And, yeah. And that's community integration, right? Yeah. It's uh, living together, not having one apartment being for homeless people and one being for never homeless people it, that sets up slums reinforces stigma certain neighborhoods being used for, by non-profit like yeah. establishing themselves there and other neighborhoods always rejecting it right so it, it was interesting what that made visible about like the systemic inequality of mm -hmm. uh, anyone in this building could have been form formerly homeless right that right. changes it no. Mm -hmm. And how do you normalize living after living on a, on the street after fleeing domestic violence? How do you how do you normalize that to someone who is your neighbor or collecting your rent? 
like how, how do we normalize all of that right yeah you got to meet someone um it's the same as you know if someone thinks they've never met anyone gay but it's because they're not safe to come out to so they know all these gay people but they can't tell them because they right. say prejudicial shit all the time yeah and just you it's been proven that prejudice of all kinds is challenged by knowing one human being who's from whatever group that's um, so gay of you to say Tay. Ah! <laughs> so yeah. gay of you to say i will accept you set it up for me baby hey let's talk a little bit i absolutely have always loved this and i can't wait to be worked out of out of my profession it's peer support peer support Mm -hmm. workers peer workers are brilliant because um they're vital to to helping people succeed in homelessness to succeed from coming out of homelessness because they understand and they they are they they gravitate to each other because they get it. They get the stories, they get the struggle. Talk to me a little bit about why that's a beautiful idea and and what the expertise of living through those challenges brings to someone. Good. Um, I really support that too. It it challenges um, distance between professionals and the people that we work with. So it shows how those are often the same people experience needing things um, want to give back and want to um, they peer workers have knowledge that social workers do not have and that you cannot get from reading a book and that Mm -hmm. is very hard one that comes with a lot of trauma and so it's kind of to transform that trauma into learning for other people that is a magical that that is a spiritual uh, transformation it's a gift yeah that it's useful that all your suffering is useful for helping other people see that you can get out or see that healing is not a straight line right Mm -hmm. and that are gonna have relapses we are gonna um you know go back to the shelter at christmas when we're so lonely and see people one of the only groups of people who never judged absolutely yeah Right. And that goes back to Jesse's um, definition. Is, yeah, you- it's about who you can be yourself with. That's what home is, is that we have space to be ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And not be so judged and not be so vulnerable and out there. The other reason, um, like, peer support values that knowledge that they have learned through their experiences and it it admits that we need that that's complementary to the social work services because the further apart the people accessing services are from the people delivering services the more stigma we have the more that the people delivering services can think that we would never end up homeless you know it's we do have way more in common than different, right? In Absolutely. terms of like, minimum wage and mm-hmm. not having breaks and not having any sick time, like all these mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. we share. 
I think um, one of the things I like about the um, a peer support worker is definitely the knowledge. I think it's a grace that they offer. They bring in this grace that lowers immediately the power imbalances that people feel when they're um, living in, in the different structures that, that are housing them. And it offers a lot of hope. And it offers a sense of dignity and, and say you can go safely to someone and say, I think I might need to use again today because I'm really struggling versus walking down into an office and telling someone that's sitting there, huh, I think I might use today. The risk is there. It takes away that risk, right? It's a safe place to go for those conversations. Yeah, it actually is home. It actually creates a community that, that challenges those power dynamics. I try to support it everywhere that I see it because it is very easily crushed. It is very easily undermined. Like if you underpay peer counselors, you are reinforcing stigma. You're saying their knowledge is less valuable. Not worthy. University. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's insane to me. So when, when we did our last podcast, a couple of questions came up from people and they just wanted to have you discuss just a little bit more on no, they, they didn't quite get the, or some of them did, sorry, I don't want to make a general statement there, but some folks didn't understand what really is the system barriers. They, they just see a homeless person, they think, well, why can't they be housed? So what are the ethical issues social workers might face and what are the barriers and systems? Just a brief overview again of that, that keep people from going to us and saying, I'm going to use, but rather have a peer support worker. Talk a little bit about that if you can. Yeah, sure. First of all, that's encouraging that people are asking those questions. That's good because it's the next level, right, of understanding this. Uh, first of all, we don't have enough housing for the number of people that need housing. And it's constantly more people are becoming homeless, right? So even if we housed everyone who's homeless in Calgary tonight, there are people coming down who are experiencing domestic violence, experiencing child abuse, involved in a child welfare system, all those risk factors. Coming out um, of prison. Yes, big one, big one. And it isn't, we need to prevent as well as intervene. And we are not doing either of those things fully. No, we're right? not, not 100%. Yeah. So part of what's difficult about being a social worker is you can see that there's, say, 50 beds in Calgary that the person you're working with would fit those criteria, right? So probably dual diagnosis, mental health and addiction, like 50 beds would be quite generous, right? <laughs> Thinking you have that many options in Calgary. Are you talking about Vancouver here? <laughs> yeah, or anywhere, like it's ridiculous. Yeah. Okay, but yeah. we'll start there at this generous number. Um and you know that the wait lists for those 50 beds are 500 people deep, right? And so you know that at least 300 of those people are going to die on the street waiting for that bed. And that person comes and sees you every week, say at source, like the centralized intake for adult services. Yeah. And what that did when they centralized the intake, because that makes sense in like one application, instead of applying separately to agencies, you don't even know about them. Like they all have different rules, different criteria. The idea to centralize it is great because then the person goes to the best place for them. Right. Yeah. Um, 
except the other thing that it showed is that <coughs> huge waiting list, right? So we know that there are 500 people who are never going to get the housing that they need. And even if we doubled all the beds and all those programs, you know, it would be 200 of them. Like, right. so it is, it feels overwhelming, but that's why the change must be systemic, right? If you did something like, you know, rent control, Alberta is terrified of rent control. Alberta is very pro landlord, very mm -hmm. pro uh, free market and all those ideas. Uh, so as long as uh, someone can raise the rent at any time for whatever, with no reason, whenever they want, no one is safe from homelessness who's renting, right? Like, doesn't matter your income, your anything. And of course, some people would be more resilient than others for that. But those are the systems we need to look at, right? Like pension not being enough for especially um, elderly women to live on because mm -hmm. they were staying home raising the next generation. So Absolutely. they're so small. What is our society doing there, right? So those are the examples. If you want to end homelessness, end child abuse, right? <laughs> yes. So, Better edu free education, free university, it just goes on. Yeah, yeah, I would say, how are you doing that when you haven't ended poverty? Right. Intergenerational poverty of not being born into poverty, not being able to go to school, to have those work boots, to, you know, all the opportunities cut off from the very beginning, that we're always going to have homelessness in that kind of society. Yeah, the, the, you know, the obstacles and the barriers are are massive and the solutions are far and in between right now. But we do know there are other ways that homeless folks are housed. So I'm going to list a couple and then I'll ask you about a few to give us a broader definition. So there's emergency shelters, there's transitional housing, there's supportive housing, there's rapid rehousing, there's intensive case management, which is done at the source in different places. There's prevention, which we talked about, about ending childhood uh, abuse and domestic violence and poverty there's affordable housing wow what an issue that is eh? <laughs> outreach there's outreach and outreach is beautiful and i absolutely love outreach and outreach sometimes uh, works with folks that are living in encampments and are also folks that are living in tent yes. towns so tank um stasha what is an encampment and then what is tent towns and why are they vital yeah, so, oh, so interesting. Um, encampments are usually when there's lots of reasons to be afraid to go to the shelter, right? Like, it's it's not safe, it's you could get COVID, like, there's so many things about why it's dangerous, you owe money, you know, it's, it's a lot that you risk by going there for a mat on the floor. Um, so lots of people camp, even when it's cold, even when it's everything. Um, you know, there's people who move across the country camping. And for a lot of people who have, you know, certain mental health issues that make you um, hypervigilant or paranoid, it is hard to be in a crowd. It is hard oh, to sleep. Oh, gosh, yes. With yes. everyone else noises and smells and everything like it is overwhelming mm -hmm. so lots of people camp and um 
sometimes like some people clean up after themselves because otherwise the cops find you right so true it's a a sustainability thing right um if you want to stay there you need to pack out your garbage and some people don't do that and lots of people in active addiction um are not prioritizing those ideas right of um taking your needles out with you some people are of course um but encampments cause those kind of problems especially in an urban area especially lots of people camp down by the river right and then your tarp and your blanket and your stolen bicycles are ending up in the river Mm -hmm. um there's some real concerns there right and of Mm -hmm. course people light themselves on fire every year like you know trying to heat a a lean-to shelter with propane there's a lot of safety issues and needles yeah yeah needles yeah so because we take away safe injection sites so they have to do it in their encampment well exactly and that's part of the harm reduction too is admitting they're going to do that where do you want them to do it right where you put it in a bin you know Mm -hmm. um yeah it's really simple but calgary has actually had some leadership in that area um actually working with bylaw officers and kind of cross-training uh, interprofessionally to get some understanding about um, it's never ending if you just take down this person's tent every day you know they still need somewhere to stay there it's it's going to happen again it's so again. they don't only take down their tent they take it away yeah this is what I mean yeah. and there's a lot of um, the, the tent cities especially in BC one of the only places where it's warm enough to look mm-hmm. as a phenomenon mm-hmm. Um, but there is in Edmonton and, you know, various places. Toronto. Yeah. And it is about occupying land. It's that people don't have a choice. The shelters are full. The, you're not providing housing. They have nowhere to go. They don't mm-hmm. just disappear at night, even if you want them to. Right? So mm-hmm. there's interesting politics about that of, um, you know, if I'm staying in the campground in BC and I paid my camping fees, why does it matter if I'm homeless or not? And uh, if if this is my housing, are you able to remove it because I'm on public land? Like other people, landowners would think that was theft, right? If I came right. to your shed every day and took all the stuff you put in it away. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, and so, and there's some interesting community organizing going on in terms of... Um, what is causing all this homelessness right what has caused us to be in this tent city and and that we can make demands on our government and say like look this is a policy failure what are we going to do about it and there has been some movement in bc where they um only dismantle the tent city by providing people with housing that's how you actually address that problem Mm -hmm. you house people (laughs) 
but there's only so many single resident occupancy places that were available. And then the tent city that was taken down in Vancouver just moved forward to another location. So there is a beautiful podcast called We Are Not the Virus outside that comes from Toronto and it talks about different tent towns and it addresses uh, water, earth, fire and wind. So if you get an opportunity to listen to an amazing podcast, I'd give a shout out right now to uh, We Are Not the Virus in Toronto that uh, actually has conversations with folks living in tent cities want to talk about a little statistic oh are you done with that tank sorry oh i'm just saying it's a really powerful political position like we should state we should occupy the land until the government does something what the heck you don't you know we should be loud if if i'm going to be homeless people are going to know about it right (laughs) that is because our society has failed it is not an individual problem it isn't right there isn't there are not people who deserve to be homeless that's not a thing if we could get away from that everything else would make more sense (laughs) well let's talk about the numbers of homelessness so Mm. stats from the canadian alliance to end homelessness uh c-a-e-h-e-h suggests that five percent of canadians have been homeless themselves and 31 percent know someone that has been homeless Tim Richard, uh, president of CEAH, and I hope I'm saying his name right, states that that 5% translates to 1.6 million Canadians. And in a report that Tim wrote in 2016 on the state of homelessness, it was estimated that 235,000 Canadians experiencing homelessness in a year and 35,000 on any given night. That was taken from CTV News on August 12th. There are currently, from Calgary's plan to end homelessness when they did their stats, 3,000 people in Calgary who are experiencing homelessness on any given night. And Rain City, so Rain City that we talked about in Vancouver, the Rain City Community Foundation, they do a yearly homeless count. And their homeless count for 2020 found that there were 3,634 people in Vancouver experiencing homelessness on any given night. Yeah, that's important. It's it's not a small problem. Mm-hmm. And it's not getting smaller. So as we get richer as a society, that is not it's making us less equal, not more equal, right? Mm-hmm. So we're having more of this problem. That is a symptom of the other failures of our policies, of our society, of our decisions. Um so homelessness is actually it is a good route to try to trace back, right? And when you look at the actual causes of it, we are doing a terrible job on all of that prevention, right? We definitely of, uh, are. Like child abuse is so prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, Domestic violence. Society. Yeah. And we act like like a minority of people are experiencing that. It, it's estimated that like a third of people experience child abuse we are not acting like that is true, right? Mm -mm. We should have so many universal programs about that. We should provide counseling as part of provincial health care. There's so many things that we would do differently if we lived like that was true. If we cared. If we cared enough to dig a little deeper and and be outside ourselves and, and look at, like you say, our community members that are actually dying on the street from an overdose because you've taken that 
injection site away from them or you've taken their encampment down because they have not the ability to remove their garbage or pick up their needles we haven't taken the extra step to be mindful to be gracious with each other so part of the other issue that we'll talk about uh, quickly is the social depriments of health even after you're housed people are still experiencing health issues that when we talk about that 50 billion dollar cost in homelessness that's just structural this doesn't talk mm. about the endless game of health care and we'll have a, our, our next guest is uh, with tank and I, or stash and i will be ellen who's a community paramedic here in calgary we'll talk more about health issues but is there anything you want to add to homelessness and, and the cost and the people experiencing it there's also people experiencing lots of health issues do you want to address that quickly yeah, I think I think we talked about some of the main examples. Is like untreated mental illness has has long term effects, real consequences, especially compound trauma. It once someone is safe, they can begin that process. It is so hard when you keep being traumatized, and mm-hmm. of course, it affects how you see the world and your hope. Um, very much and we know social determinants of health we know being homeless causes so many other problems we know so many people who've had a limb amputated just because they couldn't get their insulin just because they didn't have access to a glucometer to that safety to Mm -hmm. treat their chronic illness there's so many examples yeah and that should not be happening we are so rich as a country um there is no way people should be dying on the street. Mm-hmm. So I want to I want to just quickly talk about a group that I worked with for a very very long time, and they're some of my favorite people. And those are folks that have uh, neurocognitive disorders or an intellectual disability or physical disability, and they also have an accompanying. Um, yes, folks, people with intellectual disabilities do have and live with mental health issues. They are diagnosed living with schizophrenia or bipolar, um, and uh, they have autism and Asperger's, and they have many, many challenges. And some of those challenges come with stigma and shame and, and lack of understanding, and they do also have addictions issues. So they are considered complex needs individuals. And they take up a little bit of space, I'll say a little bit of space, in most of our mental health facilities and mental health wards in Calgary. And part of the problem is the lack of understanding, A, that people with disabilities have the right to belong to community and be part of inclusion and and live the lives that we all want to live. And the other part of that is that folks Mm -hmm. consider um, someone with Down syndrome who's at a mall and starts to quote unquote act out or have a behavior that that is what you typically see from someone with a disability they don't see that that could be someone having a schizophrenic moment or a mental health breakthrough and when we talk about NIMBY this is the largest population of folks that struggle to get housing in community because we've always uh, we've taken people and put them in institutions uh, very early in their lives and people with disabilities aren't seen as contributing members of society they're seen as people that are users of services and systems so I want to make sure that we're reflective of, of the need for people with complex needs intellectual and physical disabilities that they are also someone that um, is afforded a house and and belonging in community because that is often yeah, overlooked. Yeah, and we yeah. 
I'm glad you got that in there because as a society, we should be judged by how we treat that group of people, right? That if your society does not wrap around someone with complex needs and, and try to find ways um, to be with them in community and to support them in sustaining housing, because that's the biggest thing is giving the four walls is not enough, right? Mm -hmm. It Mm -hmm. is uh, sustaining housing and sustaining services, sustaining supports, sustaining relationships, because Mm -hmm. otherwise it is meaningless and it Mm -hmm. is a house. It's not a home. And, um, you know, it's, it's the quality of it. Mm -hmm. It's not, Oh, you have four walls. Yeah, <laughs> I just, for me, I just think if everybody could see everybody's uniqueness and celebrate that mosaic, our cultural differences, our gender differences, if we, if we could just all just sit back and take in what what um, beauty we have to offer each other, and live with that kind of kindness, I think we'd be in a better world. Couple of last questions: Does housing first work, Stasha? Does it work? Is this the end to homelessness? Yeah, yeah. So we finally proved all that um we won't end homelessness unless we prevent it that that is sometimes glossed over all the time glossed over but housing is a human right and we should act like that is true and housing first does that um it it does not make people earn housing and when we were making people earn housing and then they were experiencing over and over again this quote-unquote failure Earn housing, which we know is impossible. Say it again. Earn your housing. Yeah, Yeah, that's super abusive. And we were Mm -hmm. doing a lot of harm. Mm -hmm. And so even that shift in thinking that we can we can end homelessness, what would it take to end homelessness? That's a, a a good place to start what would it take to end homelessness because then we will address things like child abuse things like pension things like uh government supports not being enough to live on um and then then we will we won't have that in that kind of society which does celebrate our strengths that we need um diverse brains to solve problems and we've got some really big problems right now you know (laughs) So what can the average citizen that's interested in this do about it? That's our last question. This is how we're fading out today. What can we do about this? Well, that's a toughie. Well, you can research agencies, support agencies that do peer support because they need that support. Um, A lot of governments and agencies are afraid of that um, risk, and they're afraid of, of challenging their own professional authority comes from that distance from the people we work with. So supporting that kind of uh, rabble-rousing is always good. And supporting housing first when you see it. And understanding those principles and explaining it to other people. Of taking it a little farther than the guy panhandling on the street. To, to understanding what the roots of homelessness are and how they are policy failures. What we can do about that. And no matter what, there's so many of those that one of them will be in your wheelhouse, right? (laughs) Something that you can work on because it's so broad, like so many policies result in homelessness for people. Um, It's actually encouraging because we can work on that from so many different angles and meet each other in the middle more. 
Fantastic. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us again. I absolutely love you Thank and appreciate you, your time. We'll mm -hmm. talk again soon. This is a shout out to three incredible social justice and community activists who inspire me to continue to challenge the way folks view homelessness and addiction. Vicki Reynolds is a PhD registered clinical counselor and activist therapist who does her work through social justice activism and community work in the Vancouver area. Her work with frontline workers and others to resist vicarious trauma and burnout through staying in the zone of fabulousness is a must read for anyone who wants to enact our collective ethics. Vicki also has amazing conversations with individuals that are doing the hard work of walking some of the most vulnerable in our communities through this opiate catastrophe. Check out her solidarity talks on YouTube. On one of these talks, Tara Taylor is featured and they are the board chair of the Overdose Prevention Society in Vancouver's downtown east side. Tara has been doing grassroots work with a focus on harm reduction for over 15 years and this conversation is too good to not take the time to watch. The other solidarity talk I was moved by was with Zoe Dodd and Tara Taylor again. Zoe Dodd is someone you may recall that had that brilliant one and a half minute conversation with Prime Minister Trudeau demanding he do more to address the overdose crisis in Canada. Zoe is also one of the founders of the Overdose Prevention Society in Toronto and she is a community activist concerned with HIV AIDS, hepatitis C, poverty and she addresses these issues using harm reduction approaches. She is one of a few passionate people working alongside the residents of tent towns in Toronto. She was on the podcast We Are Not the Virus which holds space to speak to individuals living in tent towns so we may understand why tent towns are vital to the survival of many homeless individuals in Canada. When we work with some of the most most vulnerable, overlooked, and undervalued folks in our communities, we need to continue to learn and we need to shoulder each other up. This is vital to addressing the emergent issues that our homeless folks live with minute to minute, hour to hour, day in and day out. Sharing your knowledge and passion for social justice, harm reduction, and community service keeps us all in the zone of fabulousness and gives us the inspiration and the energy needed to show up for those we journey alongside of. Therefore, I would like to voice my appreciation for the work these beautiful folks do and for sharing their harm reduction approaches and stories with us. <laughs>